it. And we are live. We are going live with a very special edition today of the Data on Kubernetes Community live stream number 145. No coincidence that we are with someone who's very used to being on stage, very used to live audiences. <laughs> we we're just chatting uh, backstage about the wonders and triumphs and tragedies and tribulations of being in a rock and roll band. It is a long way to the top if you want to rock and roll. It is also a long way to the top if you want to dock and roll a date on Kubernetes. Uh, just quick, quickly before we get started, dropping the link here for our CFP. It is open. It is still open. It will be open for a couple more weeks for the DOK Day in KubeCon on October 24th. It'll be a hybrid event in, in, in Detroit on October 24th. Definitely check that out. If you've got an idea for a talk, let us know. If you're not sure if it's going to match up well with what we're looking for, um, let us know. That being said, joined by a very special guest today, Kurt is not only a technologist, he's also the lead, the leading, the leadingest guitarist of the band called The Intolerables, who I will also be linking here. Kurt, very good to have you with us. How are you doing today? I'm awesome, Bart. I, I, I feel like you nailed it right there. We could just call it a day at this point, maybe, and we're good. Uh, no, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Happy to be here. Good. And so... You've been in the game, technology game, and the music game for quite some time. Let's focus on the technological side. How did you get started? What was your experience like getting into cloud native, containerized applications? Tell me about that. Yeah, um, happy to. So um, I never take a direct path anywhere, apparently. I often think I do. I actually, in a previous lifetime, um, studied wildlife biology and wildlife management. And when I did that, and even to the family. point, you, you, got, you got a PhD, I believe? I got a PhD. Along the way? That's a big deal. Yeah. Dr. Kurt, very good to have you. And thank you. Yeah. And, um, but uh, when I was there, you know, I was, I was motivated by curiosity and wanting to understand things more. And when you do that and go down a path of science, you have to start doing the math, ultimately. And, um, and so I ended up really going deep into statistics and focusing on data and analytics. And so I did I did that in that field for some time and, and then ended up moving into consulting and did consulting with big conservation planning, and which is a great space because that's where you're talking about data and analytics, you're modeling systems, but you're also modeling human decision systems. And you're talking to people about what their values are, you know, what, what, what are the things that we want to do? What are the things that we need to avoid? And so you get into this kind of this more complex decision space mm -hmm. as, as opposed to just modeling something. So I kept doing that, uh, went further down consulting and started doing this more broadly, not just in conservation and wildlife, but across a lot of different industries, um, you know, a lot of standard sort of supply chain optimization and but also real decision making stuff for investments, blah, blah, blah. And as I was doing that and sort of building technical skills, I really just started to develop a appetite for wanting to be in in a real tech field and also had the had chance to join Section, which is an early stage startup at the time. And having just seeing it all laid out in front of you, right, all these things that we're trying to build. And again, being in that space of it's it's part data and models, but it's part just like being able to connect the dots between what, are, who are the people out there? What do they need? How do we solve those problems? And how do we bring all that stuff together? So, so that's what led me here to section and my title's direction of information engineering. It's really data science um, 
analytics, data availability, and you know, ML, AI type application development and collaboration with our engineers and that sort of thing. And just kind of all the weird stuff that falls into that space of how do we make sense of things? So speaking of which, two things, you know, you mentioned supply chain and investment. If someone wanted to invest in supply chain technologies nowadays, given the challenge we're looking at with supply chain, any quick words of advice or things to avoid? Oh, you know, I would say, so when, when, if, if we want to talk about specific things that somebody could do to optimize their supply chain, that's easier to address and then to make good investments. In that case, making investments right now in, in uh, supply chain, I think is a huge challenge because if you're going to make those types of investments, you need to really be across some fundamentals. And I really, I'm not active in, in the big investment area right now. And that's partly by choice because I, I just not sure where a lot of the fundamentals are. I mean, we've been debating whether or not we're even in a recession for the past six months, you know, and over the past couple of years, we've had some of our worst economic signals and some of our best. And so I think that people are pretty good at identifying the symptoms of supply chain problems right now, but I don't, I, I'm not across people who have good cures you know, or good treatments for that. And I would be really skeptical. So I would say if anybody is interested in that, you're going to have to go deep. You're going to have to, you're going to have to read a lot of company docs for people who are in that space to try to get, try to get across it. Okay. No, that's a, a great answer. I, I also just because recently uh, saw a couple of things about supply chain and also looking at the impacts of the pandemic. We have higher demands than ever. Then we have issues of getting across the country. We have huge problems just specifically in the United States with the need for truck drivers, all these different things to become a part of it. I guess the related back to what we're talking about today is where you said the whole issue, the importance of connecting the dots. Where I wanted to take that with what you were mentioning about analytics, something we hear about a lot that I've been hearing for a long time from CEOs and, and different folks out there is you know, don't tell me about data, tell me about insights, right? Someone yeah. in your position, what does that really mean? How do we put that into practical terms? And maybe from there, we can probably segue into your into your talk so that we don't spend, don't take too much time talking about supply chains and investments. Yeah, it's, it's all the same thing. Um, yeah, I, I have, uh, yeah, data and analytics are like data. Those are, you can think of them as things, even though they're not, because we, we, even, we invent data off of the backs of things. Um, but we can we can treat those as pretty close to facts. Those are just things that are out there. And analytics are just different ways to churn those out and different perspectives for looking at them. Insight really requires bringing values, bringing human or business values to that. And really the heart of this whole talk is how complicated that is. I, I mean, jumping to the bottom line of, of my experience in this space, Anytime you try to introduce a solution or you try to move into an area and shine a light on it, you actually, you create and you evoke a lot of mental models for people when they're experiencing that. And so if people come to me and they say, hey, I don't want to see the data, I want the insights, then it's like, okay, but then I need you to sit down, lay down on the couch right here, and we're going to go, you're going to go through therapy so that we can pull out all the things that are hidden in your thinking so that we can identify what actually is going to be the insight here, you know, because people come to it with a lot of habits, a lot of practices, a lot of expectations. You can get those out, but they're not, they're not available on the surface. So no data scientist can deliver insight. You know, they can, 
they can bring the ingredients for it, but it's when that user, um, the interested party, really rolls up their sleeves and engages with it. That's when the insight's going to happen. And it comes, it's kind of a dialogical process in there between the data and the person because you have to get all you have to you have to get all the interesting stuff out. I think that's a great insight. <laughs> Never better put no, but for real, in the sense that, and I always go back to this as someone who came into the tech space from a non-technical background, is as much as we're talking about, insofar as we're talking about these very technical concepts, while we are being technical, we must always try to be as human as possible. And like you said balance those ideas off somebody else because something that's super clear to us may not be to another person and until there's something human in the sense of value that's that's satisfying one of you know maslow's needs whatever it happens to be there's got to be an additional step being taken there if not a number remains a number a piece of information remains a piece of information doesn't become knowledge it doesn't become something actionable um that being said though what are we going to talk about today what are we going to learn today with you um, I don't know what you're going to learn. That depends on what, what, what you have in your head. No, um, what, what I'd like is just, um, for us to have the opportunity to talk about and appreciate exactly this challenge, because I, I think too often it goes unstated too often. We focus on if, if you build the right tech, then everything's good. Um, and so what we're going to talk about is systems, systems that we've been working on at section and how, the heart of it is solving the location problem. And I've got some slides after this, but the location problem is basically like, where do you want to deploy your app? And the standard practice right now is you want to deploy your app, you go into one of the big cloud providers and you pick a location and you're like, this will be the one. And you'll have some kind of model or heuristic you do to do that. But it, for larger applications and more dynamic applications, that's hard to do that real well. And there are costs and benefits to that. So we're, we're trying to, that's one of the things that we're trying to make easier. But as we, as we delve into the process of using computers to automate and simplify this task, it just evokes more and more of the stuff that people have in their heads. And we want to understand better what people expect, what they desire out of this. And we want to be able to meet that. But at the same time, you have to kind of, you have to find that happy middle, right? We're trying to do something, take something complicated, make it simple and express it in a, in a, in a Kubernetes like grammar. So people can, uh, they can express their desires into the system and then they can get back what, what they want. And yet in the middle of all that is this really messy thing of like, how much is enough and how much is too much? And, you know, the, is, you know, it's just all that stuff. So that's sort of what I'm going to go into right here. Okay. Sounds good. Let's take it away. All right, let's do it. Let me um, pull up some slides. Um, here we go. We go into... Perfect. All right. Is that good? Yep. Okay. So um, I guess I already kind of advanced page. So just the starting page, I already introduced all that. So I, I guess I, I should do a little intro first of section. Um, and section is a distributed computing platform a distributed hosting platform. So we can host applications, 
that have a distributed dynamic global footprint. And we offer a single point of entry. It's a Kubernetes-like interface. You can issue kubectl commands, that sort of thing. And, and then the application itself is going to be deployed according to your business needs. And you'll, you specify those business needs through a, a config map that, uh, that describes certain principles of your deployment. Okay, so you can you have a fully containerized app. You want to deploy it in all the best places. And so you can come on to section and you can do that. And we have systems that are designed to make it happen, primarily a thing called the Adaptive Edge Engine. The Adaptive Edge Engine manages deploying that workload. It chooses, it identifies the best locations for it. Uh, it deploys it there. It will route traffic there. It does all that stuff, right? So the fundamental thing in the middle of that for me is solving the location problem. And the location problem is where should your app be running at any given moment? And if you were doing this manually, you'd have to check in all the time. You'd have to rethink about what you wanted. You'd have to change your deployments, that sort of stuff. So we're trying to automate that, but we need a way for you to express what you want. And the standard thing that everybody wants is just this. They want the best performance and the lowest cost, um, which I, I have sympathy for that. And yet, at the same time, they're in opposition, right? Because you're going to get your best performance if you spend the most money and you deploy your app into every available data facility. You're going to get the lowest cost if you just pick one of those. But uh, your performance is going to suffer. You're going to have higher latencies to many of your customers around the world. So the big question is, what do we do about it? How do we how do we make sense of this? So minor minor musical introduction. We could maybe have Dire Straits, Money for Nothing, and Clicks for Free. <laughs> clicks for Free. <laughs> clicks, Money for Nothing, Clicks for Free. That is exactly it. <laughs> anyway, good, good, good. Uh, or or Queen Queens. I want it all. That's true. I like it. Anyway, lot, there's going to be plenty of, expect other musical interjections. But anyway, keep going. Okay. So, so the run anywhere option, I'm just going to throw money at this problem. Like I, I really, I'm just going to put myself in every data facility. The question is, is that really worth it? Right. And this is where the values come up. Well, it's worth it if you place a really, really high premium on the lowest possible latency. Right. But if you if you value latency up to a point, but, you know, getting closer to those last few hundred or few thousand users, user locations maybe isn't going to make a big business difference for you. Then you're like, well, maybe I can save a little bit of money. So you need to know how 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 do the dollars relate to the performance? And then you have this other layer over the top of it, which is there are a lot of different dimensions here. And so what Section's trying to do is come up with a system that can be continuously adaptive to all the various signals according to your desires or, you know, business needs, but I'll just say simply desires. So traffic patterns change. You know, if you're in every data center 24 hours a day, 
you're probably wasting money for a chunk of every day because the local traffic may be relatively low while the while people are asleep, for example, right? There's daily daily patterns to the internet traffic. And so if you could monitor that traffic signal, you may be able to say, I need to be in that place now. I don't need to be in there in the middle of the night, that kind of thing. Network health impacts this. Sometimes you have data facilities that can't be reached. Um, and so you'd like to avoid deploying there and come back to them when they come back online. You may have compliance or other requirements, maybe operational requirements that say, I need to be in a certain type of facility. You know, and they're, they're just all these different things um, that are changing the nature of the network at any given moment. And you ideally want your application to be sensitive to that and to be able to be adaptive and, you know, self-healing um, footprint around those types of problems. And so our system has ways to manage this. And then what we're talking about today is how, how do we meet you, the user, in how you want to think about and express these needs and how can we help make sure that your expectations are aligned with what our system can deliver and that's the connecting the dots on the human end so from a mathematical programming standpoint it's a trivial problem to say that you want to optimize um, performance or proximity and cost because i i can write a convex optimization objective function that can do that but that's not the same as doing this well for somebody. So, so we have a system where we can optimize for performance and cost dynamically in relation to one another that will give you the effect of running everywhere without actually having to run everywhere because you'll be where you should be when you need to be there. But just being able to write the formulas to do it isn't the full story because you, the user, you're the customer, you're going to come to us and you're going to say, okay, I, I love your system, but if I, if I can free up another 10%, you know, or pay another dollar, how much more performant do I get? Or, you know, if I want to save uh, 5% off of this, how much does that impact me? We need to know that as smart consumers so that we can make those trade-offs. And this is a part that exists outside of any just simple mathematical formulation of the problem. And so we've come up with some tools to help, but in the process of this, we're also discovering a lot of these ideas, principles, values, and mental models that people bring to this space. And, and, and honestly, it's the part that makes it really fun, right? Because if it were just a matter of writing a formula, then big deal, you know, we would all just do that. You know, nobody's, nobody's, losing any sleep anymore over how well can we measure air temperature you know we've kind of solved that problem so this what makes this an interesting problem is that so much of it exists in the human mental space but we could we could for you make a tool and we could show you some of your trade-offs here we could say down here in the lower left this is your lowest cost option based on your actual application this is the lowest cost option and it gives you, you know, the lowest performance. We can, at the far other end in the upper right, that's your highest cost option. You're gonna be paying for more replicas of your application to be deployed at any given time, but you're, you're gonna get 
really good performance out of that. Now, again, for you, we can plot some intermediate points to help you think about it. And maybe you look at this and you're like, this is great. I'm paying, you know, I get a substantial discount off the maximum I could pay, but I get pretty close to the maximum level of performance. You know, maybe that's real smart for me. Or this one is like, you know, that's, this is the closest to my budget. Maybe I have a budget in the middle of that x-axis and this is the most I can spend. So am I happy with that performance? You know, you can kind of do this, but even to present something like this, this frontier of what your options look like, we still, this is still a model that has pieces to it that we need to understand. So for example, this would have to be based on traffic actual traffic or representative traffic for your application because what impacts this is what's the geographic distribution and what's the geographic intensity of use among your customer base are they you know are they is it really just hyper focused on eastern us or is it really hyper focused in western europe or australia or something like that or is it more global and shifts around the world. So at some points there's peak in Asia and some point there's peak in North America. These are difficult things to think about and they don't exist as just a number at any given point in time. And so even when we make tools and think about it, we have to do a lot of simplifications in here. And these are the things that make it very difficult to help people express their desires into a space like this. Um, so really what we're trying to do is we're trying to take all the messy stuff that's over here. Like I care about my cost, which typically I'm thinking about that on a monthly time scale. I care about performance, but I'm thinking about that on a different time scale. I want performance. I want to know, I want the best performance every hour I can get. Um, we have to take network conditions into account because that's just the substrate that we, uh, where we exist. And I want consistency in the deployment and performance of my application, but I also want it to be really responsive to changes. You know, if, if uh, maybe if the Kardashians tweet about my product and I go viral for five minutes, I want to capture all that traffic or something, right? So I want to be really responsive to that. And then whatever is being done here with my application, I want to be able to interpret that and understand that. So we want to take all these desires, oops, Sorry, I didn't mean to advance that. And we want to somehow build a nice, clean version of this where, where we deliver high configurability so a user can come in, they can interact with this config map within a typical Kubernetes-style deployment pod structure, et cetera. They want to be able to configure what they want. They want to understand what they get out of it. And we want to make sure that we're actually delivering the correct thing that is consistent with what they tried to configure in there. And that, that is the, the heart of it. There's a bunch of other fancy mathy stuff that happens in those other bits. But when you come down to this, this is the part right there. These, these three blocks, that's like the interface between the machine system and the human system, because now we have to talk about, you know, what are your values? How much do you care about this one thing? And, and how much you care about some other thing. And, and um, that's the end of the slides. The rest of it, I was just gonna do hand wavy. So I didn't, I didn't get too crazy. Um, so I'm gonna go ahead and turn that off. But I wonder, 
if that makes sense. I guess, Bart, you'll have to be the barometer of that. Does that make sense so far? It, no, so far so good. Um, you know, when I, there are different things, this could go on for a very long time. <laughs> Lay it on me. No, no, I'm just saying there's, there's a lot of different things there. And, you know, in the beginning we were talking about, are we in a recession? Are we not in a recession? Thinking about costs in general, cost stakeholders in organizations, right? So very famous, famously or infamously, I was in an organization six years ago that did a sprint migration from on-prem infrastructure to cloud and cost got absolutely out of control, um, burning a serious hole in the organization's cash to the point that they had to bring on a specialist just to help out with cost optimization, also deciding what tooling to use in order to do that building in a culture of monitoring and you know internal observability, if you want to call it that way, looking at who was doing what. That then also created friction because developers then felt that they weren't being trusted or, or free to uh, explore the technologies that were at their disposal. That in turn becomes a talent issue because people are like, well, if you won't let me play with technologies. There are 10 other companies over here who will. Anyway, there are different points here that we have to be taking into account, but in a basic, basic package, right? How do we get everyone to be a little bit more like a CFO? How do we get, you know, how do we bridge this gap between tech and business at the most basic building blocks, human level, connecting the dots? Where does it, and where should any organization start with this? Um, Man, that's, yeah, that's a couple podcasts in there, I think. Right. But, uh, no, that's exactly right. Like key, if you can only share one or two things, what would they be? Well, the the fundamental for, thing for me, the fundamental challenge for me in this space right now is helping people think about the temporal framing of the question, because there's not just a cost. There's not just performance. You know, you have to frame those things. And it's, it's a cl- classic sort of, you know, consulting mediation type engagement, the first thing you have to do is you have to get everybody together and you have to really define clearly what the problem is, what the scope of the problem is, what the different uh, levers and moving pieces are and what's out of scope and this and that. And so with cost stuff and financial stuff, there's, there's almost always in my experience an automatic disconnect between the time frame on which that happens versus the time frame on which everything else in the organization happens. Like, you know, the engineers are making decisions every few minutes about how things are being built. The, you know, sprints are weekly. And, and so you're having all this decision cycling that's happened with, happening within an organization. And yet the financials, the financials typically are happening on a monthly, quarterly and annual schedule. And so, you know, in this case, if we're talking about optimizing the spend for a given service, you can, that's easier to do. Like I can, I can say I have a budget for groceries and we're only going to spend this much on groceries, but, and as long as I'm willing to eat the same thing week after week, then I can say, okay, now I have a weekly grocery bill and I can optimize for that. Like it's going to be, you know, X hundred dollars and, so every month will be four times that. But the problem you want to avoid is the one where um, where you have that monthly budget, but you spend it all in the first three weeks. And so then you have to starve that last week, right? 
And that comes up all the time when you're trying to optimize a dynamic system. And we're trying, you're trying to optimize a static target, but with a dynamic system underneath it. And that, and that's exactly this thing. Like we don't want to, we don't want to say to somebody, we can absolutely meet your cost budget. And so now we're going to go give you this fantastic deployment for the first couple of weeks where you have, where you're, you know, just fantastic performance for all of your customers, but we burnt through too much of your budget. So for the last couple of weeks, you guys are going to have to just run in a single data center and you're going to have to send letters to people if you want to talk to them. You know what I mean? Like, and, and, and so for me, finding a way to, uh, to balance those temporal frames where you say, okay, we, we are willing to optimize cost on this time frame. So say it's monthly and we we have performance goals that you know those might be like every 15 minutes or every hour or something what can we do to try to balance those can we find a middle ground somewhere at daily and that depends on the system so with hosting and internet traffic you know the fundamental seasonal signal is is a day and so we can say maybe we can maybe we can say i have a monthly budget we'll break it down to the day and now let's come up with a performance score per day. And we can use that to try to balance those two things out. But then you have to run that for a little bit and you have to see. Because so there's that. And I don't even want to touch everything else you said about all the ripples that go through the organization. I mean, just because, you know, that that is so real and I think so present in the experience of so many people for how these things play out. But on the purely technical side, for me, it's trying to find a temporal framing that works for the different pieces of the problem. So then we can actually go about solving it or we can go about putting systems in place and then we can see how they work. But as long as as long as it's hourly performance and monthly bills, it's like, man, I'm not sure how good we can ever be at that. Mm -hmm. I hear you on that. And, and also when those are the metrics that are going to be used, a lot of things that are missed along the way. Like you mentioned, you know, using this example of, okay, I have a monthly grocery budget, things of that nature. But then, you know, let's, let's throw some variables in there. In, and we're talking about dynamic systems, is that when your developers or infra folks or whoever they are along, along the way are having to redefine and reinvent and are having new tools brought on and new technologies and not everyone's, it's not like, a, you know, kindergarten, first grade, second grade, third grade, you've got people coming in from different, all these different changes that are happening is in, in one sense, it's, it's a thriving atmosphere where new ideas are being bounced around, but it also is, these are, I would say, unseen costs that are very difficult to pin down of the arguments that are going to go on, uh, whether we use this technology or that technology, all these other things that I think are very hard in terms of budgeting for that. And when we talk about cost optimization, we're always talking about infra and we're talking about things that I understand that are more traceable and trackable, but these other elements I don't know how often they make it to the table of saying like, look, we know to roll this out. There's going to be, you know, backlash. There's going to be resistance. Some people may even leave and then they need to be replaced. These things that, that, that take place, I feel like in every organization. And I don't know how often they make it into those conversations when we're talking about performance and cost. Yeah. Uh, again, I, I think that's really profound. I don't think they make it in there enough. I think there's always this assumption that, we have a healthy organization. We have a robust and capable organization. 
And so now we can just go out and press buttons for the organization and then all the gears will mesh down there underneath and make that stuff happen. You know, I would say for us internally, even kind of sidebar, because it's like that fractal thing, right? We're trying to solve problems for people, but then we have our, we're an organization too. And so we're trying to solve problems for ourselves and all that sort of stuff. But we, we have spent, and I think this is, this is an experience people in startup space have uh, across the board, you know, but there's that tension between doing new things versus how well do you do the thing that you just, you know, do you set this thing down and move to the next thing? Or do you try to make that better? And you're always doing that. And those things, in my experience, all have a huge impact on people, whether it's being driven by cost optimization, or you're seeking product market fit or whatever, but you have that stuff going on, just as you were describing. And we have actually spent a lot of time and we have some great leadership on our um, on our tech and engineering teams that that have really basically built a wall, maybe overstating it, but built a wall around our development teams and then just became very strict about handling all the communications that came through until we started to get, until we started to get good habits and patterns in place. And so now, I think we do have that type of robust organization where when when new ideas or new things or new systems and stuff like that comes up, it doesn't feel like somebody's pulling the rug out from underneath me anymore. You know, it feels like, oh, yeah, this is what we do and we're doing it. But not like it took us a long time to get there. And and, you know, maybe maybe 12 months from now it it maybe will have fallen apart because we'll, as you said, we have brought a bunch of new people in and all that sort of stuff. But it is true. People assume that the organizations can handle it. And then I think, you know, there are the people out there who are those kind of change architects and consultants and trying to help organizations learn to be better at dealing with it. And it's, it's also a little bit of the agile philosophy, right? That you're doing this and yet still in our hearts sometimes, we don't want to be agile. We want to we want to show up and feel like we're good at our jobs and that our output is valuable and persistent, you know. And um, it's it is an inevitable problem if you're trying to make the organization better. Ultimately, it's the people, right, who who are going to be having the behaviors and having the experiences in there. It's a big challenge. Agreed. I think with that in mind the difficulty that I've seen is that, you know, downloading or installing a particular system can take time and it has its ins and outs. Yet it doesn't mean that people are at the point where we have a matrix like capability to plug in something and that we just, you know, completely can go in a different direction, whether it's agile, whether it's cloud, whether it's Kubernetes, whatever. And so understanding that everyone's going to have their sort of threshold or learning process or unlearning process. And once there's so many things that are happening simultaneously, is to get a, a, you know, to have a realistic vision of how this is going to go down. Like you said, this is why there is such a big industry around change management through consultants and, and, and books like reinventing organizations and things of that nature. Now let's take it. You mentioned, you know, this, this notion of really thinking about distributed systems going globally. We can get into different aspects of that, whether we're talking about provisioning, whether we're talking about compliance. One thing that I see as an American living in Europe, 
is that very often there's this idea, well, whether it's the United States or it doesn't matter, China, you know, we want to get into a, a market that we're not in right now because there's tons of potential and the famous 1% and the market share, et cetera, et cetera. Sometimes though, I think it's very normal to want that because of you know, the, the monetary rewards promised. At the same time, the logistics, the compliance, the who are your contacts, your context, all these different things. How, you know, what advice would you give to folks that are out there, whether in the US and they're thinking about GDPR, whether they're from Europe and they're thinking about European, you know, customers' data being jeopardized, whatever, or or looked at with different eyes. How are you approaching those those questions? And what advice would you give to people that are in management level positions that are that are that are tackling those things at the moment? Well, first, the first part, um, shameless plug for a section, but, you know, we're trying to make it easier to get that exposure and to do to 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 do the deployment, the DevOps piece of that. Um, So that's the shameless plug. But thinking about managers in companies and how how they may evaluate those opportunities and what decisions they might make, that's a totally that's that's separate from whether or not sections there or what, however they're going to ultimately accomplish that thing, you know. And and I think I think it's really there are a couple of pieces. One is there's there's going to be a key product function within that company where they need to make sure that they're that we all need to make sure we're doing our homework, right? And that we, that this target market, we can find them. Uh, they, we solve their problem. They recognize that. And, and if that, if that's happening in Asia or if that's happening in Europe or whatever, fine. And so then the question is like, is it worth it for us to go in there? This, this kind of takes me back to more my kind of consulting decision analyst side, um, which is you have to be really clear about identifying what the question is and what alternatives you have available. And with complex sort of systemic decision-making like this, you can identify, um, you can identify some objectives that can be pretty simple. You know, we want to maximize revenue. We want to, you know, uh, achieve a market share, those types of things. But then what are my alternatives? Because you're going to end up, you're going to have, thousands of different levers you can pull, right? And you can't really evaluate all those things. Mm-hmm. So, but you can build some scenarios. So you do some decent scenario analysis, kind of chunk that stuff up. But then you need to have you need to have those key stakeholders and interested parties in there because because and this coming back to my my theme that I keep beating on here, you have to give people the opportunity to discover the stuff that's already in their heads that they didn't know was in there these implicit assumptions, these implicit desires, these mental models that we've worked on that, because a lot of us, particularly in tech space, these are people who thrive on solving problems. They thrive on solving invisible problems by building invisible things, you know? And, and so people like that are people who show up with a huge library of really generalized problem solving techniques and kind of in machine learning, we call it feature engineering, mm-hmm. where you can take a bunch of data, right? Uh, the, the people that I come across in tech space are these like automatic feature engineers all the time. 
and they're constantly reducing complexity down to just a few oper operable things. That's great, but if we can't acknowledge that stuff explicitly, we start to run into all these problems because you can look at you can look at you can say, oh, we're going to do alternative C because it beats out you know on these three criteria, but then somebody discovers along the way, oh wait, there was this thing about C that I hadn't really reckoned with that was kind of just an assumption that I made or somebody else has a bias against it because of an experience they had. And so it doesn't it doesn't have to be super, um, you know, like hocus pocus type stuff, but you have to get people to sit there and reckon real honestly and clearly with what these alternatives are that we're describing, what what's going to be the basis of the decision and all that sort of stuff, because because that's when things come out. And, you know, as a as a modeler and a tool builder, it, um, those things very rarely solve a problem unless it's just some kind of mechanized automation thing. Right. More mm -hmm. often, they help us understand how we think about problems and how we see problems. And then that elevates that the human ingenuity side. And so then we start getting better and better outcomes, right? But it has to be that, like, look at it, build a thing, look at the thing, build the next thing, and do this back and forth. And you need, as you po have pointed out so well, you need all the right people in there in that conversation, because otherwise, at some point, it's just going to, somebody's going to be like, ah, forget it. I'm just going to do things the way I think is right, you know? Yep. And that's, and that's unhealthy for any organization. So yeah. how, can you, how can you build a culture where that's not going to be the case? You, yeah. you touched on the factor of ingenuity. And I, and I find that interesting because you mentioned previously as well, too, we're talking about, you know, in, invisibility of, of things that we can't see and that are intangible, which is why there's also a large need to, I don't want to say reify, but, you know, put names onto these things that we can relate to and that maybe have a bit of a sense of humor and can even have their own mythology. And what I'm getting at here is, and, and once again, as someone who prior to getting into tech didn't see the immense amount of creativity that there is that, that you see in a more visible way in, in, in music and art and other areas. But I, I see that as being a set, an essential ingredient for problem solving. In, the, in our particular case, in our community, the initial phase of, of the data on Kubernetes community was focused on database and storage. And yep. that's still a strong current What's the new thing though, where I want to get your take on this is that we're now looking at ML and AI making their way into the Kubernetes ecosystem. Practitioners saying we want to run everything under the, you know, the same umbrella. What are the, what are the challenges or what are the, the, finds, the things that you find exciting about the entry of machine learning in the Kubernetes space? And what value we can expect to get from that as well, going back to business needs and desires. Yeah. Well, I think I think on the on the purely technical side, Kubernetes offers fantastic, very rich opportunities for us to start to discover and create new ways to build and deploy and utilize these MLAI tools, right? Because for the same reason it just for for the same reason that it's been adopted in so many other application spaces. We, we have this great support for the kind of dynamic and modularized and all this other um, sort of great technical features in there. 
There are those challenges, though, with these applications and challenges that I find with ML AI stuff is similar to what we talked about this whole time. I still think there's going to be a barrier for adoption in organizations, no matter how easily we can streamline the cycle, uh, you know, the DevOps cycle of getting stuff out and into production um, and see the results and all that sort of stuff. There is always, maybe not always, but for the foreseeable future, going to be a lot of resistance about what exactly is that thing. And it's it's the same, it's the same problem. So with our location optimization thing, for example, we can say, hey, we're gonna run you, uh, you know, where you should be, when you should be there. Sounds great. Everybody loves that, right? And then you dig into it a little bit and 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 they're like, well, okay, but I have to always be in these two locations. And you, and you know, if if I if I were feeling a little a little fired up that day, I might say, well, why why would you need to be in those two places? Mm-hmm. Well, we have really good customers there, and I'm like, well, do they do traffic? If they do traffic, then you'll be there because we'll run off of a traffic signal. You know, it's like, oh no, I, I definitely want that, but I also really want them to be in that spot. You know, and you're like, okay, that. That's a special model, right? That says make it dynamic, but then also these places. And then and then they might say, hey, I want it to be really responsive to a spike in traffic. And so you do that. And then and then they're like, but wait, now my deployment's jumping around all the time. And you're like, yeah, because it's really responsive. No, I want it to be like responsive, but consistent too. So, and this is that kind of dialogical process. With ML AI in general. This happens with people at the decision-making level who are responsible for those business outcomes. In my experience, I've spent a lot of time with, um, with people that I've built these models and tools for, and, and it takes a long time to build them properly. It takes a really long time to roll them out and to get everybody familiar and comfortable with them. And there's a certain point where you can't get people more familiar because you can you can only speak in metaphors about how certain things work because if you want to if you want to transcend the metaphor those are the pe- the people you can do that with are the people who have invested substantial time in doing it you know and that sort of thing and so so you can't do the black box but when people are looking at it they come in and they're like they're like oh i like your model it returns the results that i expected to see and you'd say, well, okay, but then what happens if I build a model that points out that your mental model was actually incorrect? What if I make a model that shows you surprising results, but maybe they're more accurate? But people are like, mm, I don't know, I really trust it. And uh, I, I trusted my intuition about this before. So now I don't trust that model. And, and so my, my expectation over time is the easier it is for us to build and deploy and maintain these things the more prevalent they will become. But they'll, they'll become prevalent for most of us in really small, very limited ways until the next generation or two of people are familiar enough with working alongside this technology that then they're going to be willing to go big. I mean, I'm, I'm old enough that I remember when cars came out with automatic door lock button instead of the thing that you would lift up and down. And people were like, mm, gosh, I don't know. I don't trust that. What if the electricity goes out? I'm not going to be able to get out of the car, you know? And like, I don't, 
I don't know that that's ever been a problem, right? Nobody talks about that anymore. <laughs> no, and, and they would have had it been happening. And it's funny that you mentioned that, like the doubting, you know, the, the instant doubts that come in for any new technology. And, and like you said, with Agile, like there's a part of us that's still comfortable with, no, I just kind of want to show up and somebody tells me what to do. And, you know, that's it. And I don't want to be involved in the decision-making process or defining user stories and sprints and things like that. And I think with, you know, with, yeah, with, we like the thing that we do know. And, and, and I see that with people that are in the cloud native space, not going to mention any names, but that are questioning electric cars. And, yeah. um, and, and I don't think it's, I don't drive. I don't, I don't have a car. I, I, I do drive, but like, I don't, I haven't had a car for a long time. So for me, it's, I just use public transportation, but, um, but someone who's, you know, and also has plenty, it's not, it's not a financial question. And it says like, oh, I think we're still, you know, six years away from this actually being practical and doesn't live in an area that's particularly barren when it comes to charging stations. Yes, it can be somewhat of an issue, I understand, for folks that are going really long distances, but even that's getting easier and easier. The point is, is that, yeah, these resistant, the resistance to change is going to be there, has to be factored in in order for us to be realistic about how much, you know, there's always these talk of this inflection point and, you know, eventually things are just going to yep. turn over. Most things, though, have probably shown us that, that yeah, these things take time. They take time. It's people. actually there's some research that shows it's it, it is correlated with age distribution of the population. Right. And you, you, you need to you need to cycle the people through because the ideas stick to people as they go through their lives, you know, and so at some point, the preponderance of the people in the population have been exposed to it. And that's and that's where I think Kubernetes is going to be so valuable in this space or, or technologies like that, because they're going to they're going to they're going to reduce the barrier to use. And it's going to be easier for people to build very small targeted applications that use this technology. And then I don't care so much if it's a black box, if the only job it does is keep my pencil sharp every day, right? Like a black box that keep, so that every day my pencil is sharp whenever I want to write something, that's great. That's different than a black box in a car with, without a person in it. But if I can get used to the automatic pencil sharpener thing, and if I can get used to the transcription thing in Zoom, and I can get used to you know, my automated email thing and my CRM and I, you know, I can get used to the Netflix actually discovering shows that I like or Spotify. The more I get used to that stuff, the more when somebody else comes along and they're like, hey, I can actually drive a car without you in there and be like, yeah, that probably seems reasonable. Not so far-fetched. <laughs> yeah, no, no, that's a, yeah, it's a very, that's a very good point. I guess that being said though, being in a band, what do you think about synthesizers? <laughs> no, no, but, but I understand that these things is that if you're in an environment where you're seeing it more and more, it just becomes less, it seems like less of a threat and more like a complimentary thing to our lives. Um, yeah, and in, in a way it's like data gathering, right? It's lots and lots of validation experiments and validation opportunities and verification of correctness and stuff like that. Of course, it'll all be processed in the back of people's minds, so it'll be messy and kind of accurate but uh that's what it'll take yeah um that being said you've you know you've been in these different areas uh the academic world consulting world now with your position in section in interacting with different kinds of technologies in different ways and different kinds of people you know if you have to you know boil kurt's knowledge down to a ted talk or a song title or or, or something of that nature what's it going to be you know like what's what's your 
you know, what's the thing that you constantly see missing that you still see despite being in these different areas? You're like, you know, there's something that folks just aren't getting right when it comes to approaching these things. We talked about it, quite a few different things, but how would you sort of boil that down? I'd say if, the, if there were one thing that I would like people, I get, if, if I have to engage with, with an individual or a group in some kind of like a real problem solving setting, um, the one thing about me I would like them to know coming into that is the question, what's the alternative? Because I think a lot of people get wrapped up on trying to attain ideals and seeking an ideal is great in your personal pursuit. You want to be better at a thing. You want to run faster, jump higher, et cetera. Um, that's fine. But in particularly in business or kind of operational settings, the ideal isn't really what matters. Um, it's just what, what's my alternative? So the simplest case is with forecasting. A lot of people want to, want to look at how well does this forecast match what actually happened? And that's, that's a reasonable thing to look at, but that that's, I don't think the appropriate way to evaluate that forecasting tool, the appropriate way to, val to evaluate that forecasting tool is how does this forecast compare to whatever other forecast I might use? Because if I'm gonna be forecasting, I'm going to be doing something. And in a lot of these cases with technology and, and particularly these complex technologies that you and I have been talking about, people are like, I don't know, it, it didn't do that well enough. It didn't do that well enough. It didn't do that well enough. And so I, I like to ask, well, what's the alternative? You know, If we don't use this, are we just not going to do that task? Or, you know, and, and, and so there's a little bit of a game to play and it comes back to that fundamental thing about we have decisions to make and we're gonna make a decision, but then we're gonna work every day in order to get good outcomes out of it, you know? And so when we make this decision, it shouldn't, it shouldn't be based on, is this thing ideally perfect enough? It's just, does this thing move me further down the road? Is this better than what I'm doing right now? If it's a teeny tiny bit better and it doesn't cost anymore, yeah, let's do it, you know? Um, and so, so in where I work, that question of what's the alternative is a really important one because again, that's not people's natural mental framing for when they look at this stuff. Great insight. And I think it also encourages folks to really be solution-minded and oriented saying like, okay, you may not like that one. We're still stuck with an issue. If the status quo is acceptable enough, then fine. But can we please be considered? Yeah. Anyway. I, I yeah. Really, but I, so, so let's, let's just be clear that that's what we're choosing. And, you know, let's recognize that that's the best choice available to us, you know, and, and so we'll do it. That's great. And it's a nice way to go full circle too, as we're, we're getting towards the end, as you started off talking about cost performance, these issues of trade-offs as a fundamental thing, whether it's cost or performance, but just when we're making decisions, being honest and transparent of, even though what we have right now may not be, once again, like you said, ideal, we've got to be, we've got to be, we've got to be practical. You know, we've got to be, we've got to be practical. Yeah. Um, that's great stuff. Now you did mention alternatives, but I would like to say one thing before we finish. There is absolutely no alternative. If you are in Louisville, Colorado on August 26th at 7 p.m. And if you are near the Tiki Bar, I'm going to put the link here in the chat because the intolerables, Kurt's 
award-winning band that will be doing a tour next year also if you're in if you're in australia in january there is no alternative i don't know what cities you'll be in but we'll have more info about that soon um but yeah definitely go to the head down to the tiki bar it's 836 main street louisville colorado saturday night live music i wish i could be there and but you, like you said you will be playing in australia next year we do have we do have members in australia where will you be in australia We'll be in Sydney area. We'll actually be out on, on Manly small Beach. Small town and small town. Small town. Yeah. We actually, our company split. It was founded originally in in Australia. So we oh, have really? part of our team there. So, okay, cool. Yeah, That's good. another good reason to go. Um, Wait, I, I, I have no, to no, interject we're not, done, we're not done yet. Yeah, go for it. Yeah. I, I, as a wildlife biologist, I have to ask a question. I know you're not living in North America now, but do they have jackalopes? where you're from because you have one on your shirt yes i do and i'm very proud to have one <laughs> because this the thing is it's actually funny is that normally normally these live streams i'll wear like the data on kubernetes t-shirt but um that i wore one yesterday and i, I it's really humid here so it's better not to wear the same shirt two days in a row <laughs> but full disclosure we believe in transparency it's one of our values so my favorite um i'm from santa rosa california and my favorite record store that I've been going to since I was a kid. It used to be called the last record store and now it's called the next record store. Sweet. Um, and, but their, their mascot's always been a jackalope and I've yet to find one, unfortunately, in the Basque country. I'll have to ask the wildlife <laughs> services around here if they can find one for me. But that was a good question and not one that I'd ever been asked before. So I appreciate that. Um, we do have something actually, speaking of t-shirts. So while, while we're talking, we have, uh, this is a community tradition. Yep. We have an amazing artist who's also a musician, Anka, who's in the background, drawing the stuff that you were talking about. So let me know when you what? can see my screen. Um, so, <laughs> so yeah, since he's a musician, he also got the guitar in there. Um, but yeah, a nice, a nice overview of the different things that we touched on, because touched on quite a few different things. So anyway, this is, this is, this is quite nice and I like it a lot. I we'll, love it. I yeah, love we'll, be it. we'll be sending that over. Kurt, this is a super good conversation, and I'm I'm very happy for the other people who are out there who are going to be able to have the chance to talk to you about this stuff. These things, there is the good thing and the bad thing is that there's not a perfect static answer. It's it's having to be open continuously, and and really using that beginner's mind when looking at things. Really not not getting aggressive or playing blame games. Focus on the problem, not the people. And, and really building out that culture, I think is absolutely essential. And we can never overemphasize, we can never over provision when it comes to, uh, when it comes to making our organizations more thoughtful in that sense. So I, I really thank you. I really, really enjoyed it. Absolutely, it's been fantastic. Thank you All very right. much. Folks, August 26th, Louisville, Colorado, <laughs> be there. Check out the Intolerables. I'll be doing so right now. Kurt, have a good one, man. Take care.